Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Uh, it, it is, of course, in your bulletin, or it's, if you're here, it's in the Pew Bibles on page 1158. A prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. That's a real pleasure to be able to share God's word with you. Uh, Kathy and I have been coming here since whenever we opened up in person, as, as uh, Doran mentioned. Uh, I go back in history with Chris. Uh, Chris was one of our students. And so I told my wife that she can choose her church because she's been following me for 40 years, as I've been pastor for 40 years. I said, now it's your turn. And so she said, uh, after we visited several churches, she goes, I think we're going to go to Middle Street. And I go, really? She goes, she likes Tamara, the organist. And she said that Chris was easy on the eyes. <laughs> and so I promised Chris that I would not duplicate any of his mannerisms. So I wore a short sleeve shirt, so I couldn't roll out my sleeves like Chris does. I could do this, but... I have this thing called muscles, you know, and it doesn't look like Chris. So anyways, I'm not going to do that. Um, but it's a real pleasure to be here, and I, I want to talk about prayer this morning. Um, and one of the reasons is I was thinking one of our favorite programs that Kathy and I watch uh, on Friday nights is Blue Bloods. And it, about 95% of the programs end with them sitting around the dinner table and saying a prayer that I learned when I was a child which was, bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen, right? And then there was another prayer that I learned like a child, and I thought it was kind of weird. Something about, Lord, keep my soul, and if I die overnight, you know, take my soul, whatever. I thought that was a really weird prayer for a young kid to learn. But that's kind of my background in prayer. So when I talk about prayer, to be honest with you, I've been a pastor for over 40 years, and even... As a pastor, there are times that I feel guilty when it comes to prayer. Maybe I felt like I wasn't praying enough, or maybe I didn't have enough faith. Um, and I'm sure that many of you probably have those same feelings. When you hear the word prayer, uh, you think maybe there's a prayer you've been praying about, maybe not enough. Uh, maybe it's, for some of us might be getting a new job. I don't want one. I'm retiring, kind of. Uh, maybe it's uh, going through chronic illness. Or somebody's going through chronic illness, maybe it's your marriage that needs a little help. Or maybe you have a child who's far away from God. 
and you want so much for that young man or young woman to come back to God. Uh, for some of us, it could be healing in our bodies um, or maybe a healing in our spirit or meaning or direction. There's a whole list of things that most of us pray about. But we probably feel as though we don't pray enough and we think that maybe we ought to pray more. Every deep person of prayer that I've ever met has been known by their very deep conviction of persistent and tenacious prayer. On the other hand, I've met people who didn't share this conviction and were consistently finding themselves in an uphill struggle when it comes to prayer. Our world, the culture that we live in, is all about quickness. It tends to erode this conviction for those of us as Christ followers to pray more and more intensely. People who know God really are gripped with this conviction that we need to pray and pray more. And it also gives us a sense of security and faith, a willingness to risk well-being. I think the Apostle Paul had this conviction in spades. And it was expressed in really a single phrase that um, that dear lady, um, didn't know your name, but thank you for reading scripture, um, found in one of the great prayers that she read in the Bible. It's this prayer that was, read, that was written in the book of Ephesians, which was a book written to a church that was going through some interesting times. And it's a fabulous prayer, but there is this one little part of the prayer. And if you've got your bulletin, I'm really going to focus on this. It's the last paragraph where Paul writes, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that works within us. Here's Paul's conviction, and let's not miss it. He says, to him who is able to do more. Paul is reminding us that our God is able to do more and more. Our God is able, your God is able, my God is able. And I want this text to really encourage you this morning because I think it's an important and awesome truth. So I do want to spend some time just focusing so it grips our hearts and our minds and our spirits that our God is able, my God is able, your God is able. But the question that comes before us is able to do what? Well, he's able to do whatever needs to be done in this world. Our God is able to do whatever needs to be done in our life. I don't believe there is a problem out there that can stop God. I don't believe there's an obstacle that can prevent God. No circumstance will ever worry God. No outcome will ever confuse God. I know. I've been a pastor long enough to know that we find ourselves in circumstances sometimes where we feel like our prayers haven't gone any higher than the ceiling. We feel like God is not listening, that God is not answering the prayer the way we want it to be answered. And it makes us, I think, sometimes gives us the tendency of doubting God questioning God, questioning the fact that our God is able. I got to tell you, when I get to this point, and I do, when I get to this point where I question and doubt that God is hearing my prayer, I remind myself that when Paul wrote these words that my God is able, Paul was in chains, he was in prison, he was suffering, he was waiting to die. And what I find interesting when I read this prayer over and over is that Paul never wrote for I stand before you, O God, I kneel before you, my Father, and pray that out of your glorious riches you will get me out of jail. He never prayed that prayer. It, I believe it was Paul's conviction in his heart and in his mind and soul 
that he would have had the same confidence in jail as he would have in a penthouse. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before my father, from whom the whole family derives its name. For my God is able. Whatever I'm facing, my God is able. There's a great parable, and I encourage you to look at it. Uh, For those of you who are computer savvy, uh, you can Google it, and it's called The Bear. And it's, it's a short documentary, and very few words are spoken in this film, but it's a provocative film. Uh, it's a story of this little bear cub, cute little bear cub, whose mom dies in an accident when the cub was really little. And, and you feel really terrible for this bear cub because you know that it will never survive without its mother with him. And in this film, the, there is a mountain lion that's been tracking this little cub be a very good meal. But then the strangest things happen. The cub gets adopted by this very big Kodiak daddy bear. And it goes through its life learning how to live in the protection of this big, big Kodiak daddy bear. And whatever the Kodiak daddy bear did, the little cub did. It learned to grub for insects. It learned to fish for fish. And when its back itched, it learned to scratch its back against a tree bark. It does life just like the great big daddy Kodiak bear did. But one day, they got separated. And the little cub could not see its daddy. And the mountain lion's been tracking this little cub all the time, waiting for a moment just like this. And all of a sudden, the mountain lion comes up, and you see the mountain lion and the little bear cub looking at each other face to face. The little bear cub really doesn't know what else to do. Because he's always seen his daddy being there. But he remembered what his daddy did when there was a dangerous situation. So the little bear cub gets up on its hind legs and and, and has its little paws in the air and lets out what should have been a roar but came out to be a little squeak. And then the camera goes back to the lion. And you can't stand. You're thinking, oh my God, this is the end of the little bear cub. Except all of a sudden, this mountain lion gets this look of fear in its face, turns his head, and runs away from the bear cub. And the camera in the documentary goes back behind the cub. And you see something the little bear cub did not see. Six feet or more behind the bear cub stands the great big daddy Kodiak bear. And he's on his hind legs, and his paws are up in the air. And when he lets out a roar, there's no doubt who's in charge. And it's just a great, great illustration of our God. That our God is always watching. Our God is perfectly capable to deliver us. That's what we need to know about the God that we pray to. To him who is immeasurably more, who can do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that works within us. Paul is reminding us that we cannot underestimate the God that we live with. The world that we live in is going to make us think very little of our God. And so I want to make this terribly clear to you, Paul says, I'm going to hit you across the head. So just for a moment, let's lean into this verse again. That our God is able to do something, to work things out. He's not a cosmic bystander. He is active and involved in each of, his, of our lives. But our God is bigger than that. 
Our God is able to do what we ask. That's what Paul says. That's why James in his book says, a lot of times we don't have because we didn't ask. Our God is able to answer prayer, but he is bigger than that. Our God is not able to answer what we ask, but he's able to do stuff we don't even imagine, we can't imagine, and stuff we don't even think about. But our God is even bigger than that. He's not able just to do what we ask or imagine, but our our God is able to do all, all that we ask or imagine. But our God is even bigger than that. He's not only able to do what we ask and what we imagine and more than we ask or imagine, but our God is able to do immeasurably more. I love the King James Version in this particular text because the King James puts it this way, our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more. And what I found out when I was a student a couple years ago is that that's not even a real word. You see it nowhere else in the Greek language. I think that Paul is making it up, trying to remind us and communicate to us that God is able to do immeasurably more, abundantly more, exceedingly more than all that we ask or imagine. Now, if that's true, that means that there's nothing that's logically impossible for God. There's nothing logically impossible if it's consistent with his character that our God cannot do. Think about that. Because we swim in a world and in a culture that says that the real forces around us are the political forces, which we know are a disaster, the economic forces, which go up and down, and forces of scientific discovery and education. But let me suggest to you that these forces really are limited to human power. So that even if you believe there's a God, we're going to live in a culture that pushes him along the sidelines. And we're not going to pray. We're not going to pray very much because we don't believe that our God can do immeasurably more. So let me take you a trip through Scripture just for a moment and share a couple of thoughts with you of what our God is able to do. We'll start in the book of Genesis chapter 1. My conviction is that God created the heavens and the earth. Whether that's your conviction or not, I really don't care. That's my conviction. And in Genesis 1-3, it says this, let there be light, and the Bible tells us there was light. Now, the first book of the Bible reminds me, and hopefully you, that the physical universe came into being because God willed it so. And there was no strain on God to do that. He could have done it with his hands tied behind his back. God was able to create the universe. He could do it. I read someone that said, someone once said that our problem is that we think that we live in a very big universe with a very little God. We think of God as the size of the statue of Zeus or the character in the Sistine Chapel, but that's not the reality. The reality is that our Bible tells us that we have a very, very big God with a very little universe. And he's able to run the whole thing with no strain at all. Our God is able. What else does our Bible teach us that God is able to do? Well, we read that God is able to interact with and suspend the laws of nature. He wants, he created it. So this is our God. Our God was able to part a body of water so that his people can cross over dry land. Our God was able to calm a storm in the sea just by saying the words, peace be still. 
Our God is Lord over time. There was a time when Israel needed a little bit more time to win the battle. Joshua prayed. God extended the day another 24 hours. So our God is able to make a day last a little longer. So if you need more time, our God might be able to do that for you. He might be able, he, our God was able to make the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. He was able to allow a boy named David to defeat a giant named Goliath. He was able to allow a drought. He was able to bring a flood. He was able to make that beautiful rainbow that's a reminder of, our, of his promise to his people. But I think one of the most fascinating stories about God's power over natural causes involves a man by the name of Naaman, and I'm sure you haven't read it recently in your quiet time, but it's in the Old Testament of second, uh, books of Second Kings. And one of the interesting things about this guy named Naaman is that he wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't one of God's people. He was an Aramean. He wasn't part of God's plan at all or part of God's army at all, but he was a very, very powerful guy, the commander of a huge army of the enemies of Israel. And one day he, one day he noticed a spot on his skin. And he knew what it was. It was leprosy. And in a way that sometimes happened in the lives of very powerful people, he realized that although he can control everything, he had the illusion of control, the one thing he couldn't do was cure himself of leprosy. So he ends up, as many desperate people do, turning to God. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 5, he goes to Israel and he approaches the prophet Elisha. And he stands outside of Elisha's house and he's begging the prophet to come out and help him. Elisha never comes out of the house. And so we read in, in 2 Kings 5.10 that, that Elisha sends a messenger to Naaman and says, what you need to do is go wash yourself in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now you would think that he would immediately go to the river Jordan as instructed. But you know what he does? Later on in the text, it says he became angry, and he was angry because Elisha didn't come out of his house. Elisha didn't come and anoint him with oil. Elisha didn't come and touch him and healed him. But Raja, Elisha sent this messenger to say, go wash in the Jordan. And so his reaction to it was, oh, wait a minute. We have bigger rivers in Damascus. Why do I need to go to that puny river Jordan to be washed? He was making fun of the river. And Naaman's servants finally get up to him and say, you know, guy, you've really done a great job. You have been a great commander. You have a lot of victories. You've had impressive assignments that you've accomplished. So, dude, humble yourself and go and wash yourself in the Jordan. So reluctantly, Naaman does. He dips himself seven times, as the messenger told him to do, and he comes out cleansed and healed of leprosy. It's a great story because God is able to heal. God is able to heal a leper. God is able to heal someone who's stubborn and lacks faith, if had any faith at all. Our God's power is not limited just to the laws of nature, but this is reality. This is our God. Our God is able to bring deliverance for all of us who are in possible situations that maybe some of you are facing this morning. God was able to deliver Daniel out of the lion's den. Remember that story when you were in Sunday school? He was able to, to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, not even a, a burnt spot on them. He was able to deliver a boy named Joseph from Pharaoh's prison. He was able to 
protect a young man named David from Saul's anger. He was able to come alongside the nation of Israel as they endured Egyptian slavery. He was able to deliver Esther from Haman's genocide, Elijah from Jezebel, Paul from the Philippian jails. So listen, if you need deliverance, our God is able. But not just that. I believe our God is able to provide. He was able to give manna to his people for 40 40 years, morning, noon, and night. He was able to bring water out of a rock. Anybody tried to do that? He was able to order ravens to bring food to a man named Elijah by a little brook. He was able to take two fish and five loaves and feed 5,000 people plus and have 12 baskets left over. The Apostle Paul understood that his God was able to provide because he wrote in 419, in Philippians 419, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God can do all that. But there's something even more significant that I believe God can do. He can change the hearts of men and women. He he was able to soften the hard heart of Pharaoh to let his people go. He was able to strengthen the frightened heart of a man named Gideon to defend his people. He was able to take a genocidal zealot named Saul and turn him into a self-sacrificing missionary named Paul. He was able to take an impulsive denier named Simon, make him a rock-solid leader for the church named Peter. That's our God. He's able to change the hearts of men and women. But I believe the biggest thing that our God can do is he's able to forgive sin. Think about that for a moment. Think about what it would mean to stand guilty before a righteous God. You know, I think of guilt a lot every now and then. I'm on the human level, every time I see blue lights behind me, I feel a little guilty. You know why? Many years ago, uh, Kathy and I had the privilege of leading a church in Florida. It was a large church. We had services on Saturday and on Sunday. Um, and we were on TV two times on Sunday. So I was on my way to church one Sunday. I think Kathy was up here in New England at the time. I was on my way to church one Sunday, and I, and I was running late, and I was pulled over by an officer at 7 o'clock in the morning. And the officer pulled me across, just right, almost across the street from the church, and said, do you know why I pulled you over? That is the stupidest question to ask anybody. I hate when they ask that question. So, Chris, so I tell the officer, no, I really don't know why. To tell you the truth, Mr. Officer, I wasn't paying much attention because I was on my way to church and I'm running late. Um, Did I mention I'm going to church? Uh, I'm a pastor. Did I mention I work for God? (laughs) And in my heart, I'm thinking, God, this isn't fair. I got up really early in the morning. I need to preach this morning. I'm, I'm going to be stressed out, and I'm about to get a ticket. And then the officer said, yes, Dr. Ron, I know who you are. I watch you preach on TV every Sunday, and you remind us that there are circumstances to our sins. I had to stop you. I stopped you because you rolled through the stop sign, and it doesn't say roll. It says stop, and there are circumstances to your sin. I don't want to give you a ticket, but I have to because the law is the law, and you're guilty. 
And so he writes the ticket, and he hands me the ticket. He says, by the way, Pastor, I am really looking forward to you preaching this morning. (laughs) Have a nice day. You know, today I get that same little feeling when I see those blue lights behind me thinking, now what did I do wrong again? And my wife probably would have a list of things that I do wrong but I never get tickets for, which is a good thing. But anyways, think about standing before a just, holy, righteous God who never sinned. Think of the mess that we have made this world that he created. And we read about it every day. We turn on your computer, put on your iPad, smartphone, TV, whatever, and we read of wars and hatred and racism and all sorts of things, things that come out of our heart, things that come out of our mouth that we wish we didn't. Think about that time that you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning wishing you didn't say something that you really said. But when we think about it, our God is able in Jesus Christ to allow his son to become human, to suffer on the cross, to purchase our pardon, to cleanse our guilt, and free us from the penalty of sin. Only our God is able to do that. Listen, we can forgive each other for things that we do to each other, but nobody can cleanse us from sin. Listen, if you're watching this morning, I don't know who you are, but if you've never asked Jesus into your life as your personal Savior, he loves you, he created you, and he wants you to accept him today, and your sins will be forgiven. But not only does God have all that power in the Bible, not only is God able to do great things, but our God never changes. The book of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever, which tells me that God's power never diminishes. His strength is never in decline. He is able to take a man who was trapped in alcohol for decades and give him sobriety. I've seen it happen over and over and again. He's able to take a marriage that has been devastated by betrayal and hurt and hatred and put it together. I've seen that happen over and over again. I've seen them take two people who were just such opposites, one from the Midwest and one from New England 33 years ago, and bring them together as husband and wife. That's my, me and my wife. He's able to take a man who is disgraced, undone by scandal and sin, and make him into a new creation. He's able to come along families time after time that have been devastated by the news of, of terminal illness and help them to face a future with the truth that there's hope because death does not have the last word. He's able to heal brokenheartedness. He's able to reconcile relationships. He's able to give wisdom. He's able to provide meaning. Our God is able to breathe hope because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and promised a resurrection to the sorry, dark, dying world. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. That's the God. Now, Paul didn't stop there. Paul, at the beginning of the text that we read, said, here's one prayer that we should be praying for each other all the time. And this is the amazing part of this prayer, that God is able to accomplish this. And Paul says this, I'm praying for you, that God will strengthen you with power. Here's those blue lights. That God will strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being where Christ dwells in your heart through faith. This is power. This is where we get our authority. 
This is the master who created and runs the universe, and Paul is praying, I want you to grow and understand the reality of this God, that the God who is big enough to run the universe is small enough to dwell in your heart, your broken, inadequate, messed up, unspiritual heart, and he can change it and give you strength so that you really grasp his love. Nobody fully understands this. But God is going to be close to us. God wants to be close to us. It's his will to be close to us. So Paul says, I'm going to pray. And this is a prayer that we can pray for one another. Paul says, I'm going to pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power. Now what's striking here is it goes very deep. Sometimes churches, we forget this. Paul isn't praying for stuff here. He isn't praying about circumstances here, although we can do that. But Paul is praying that we who are rooted and established in love may have power. And here's the key. Together with all of the Lord's people. (coughs) Listen. This prayer cannot be accomplished not going to church. Now, people give you all sorts of excuses why they don't go to church. Let Let me give you the one reason you should go to church. That Paul says that those of us who are rooted and established in love may have power together with all of God's people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. You want to grow in your faith. You want to be deeper in the love of Christ. This is how you do it. You gather together as God's people in his church. And you live life together. To know, not just to know about, but to know this love can only be done, I believe, in community. That's the type of loving God we have. That's why he created the church. Not just that there's a powerful God who is able, but we have an awesome God who wants to be immersed in all of our lives because he's not capable of not loving. A Bible teacher I know once said this. Sometimes you'll hear people say in the church, isn't it amazing that God would love somebody like me? And as I know some of you, I look out there and go, yeah, it's pretty amazing. But not really. What would be amazing if God didn't love somebody like you? Because God cannot cease to be loving. It would be amazing if God ceased to be loving, but he can't. That's not his character. It would be a departure unseen from all of eternity that God would depart from being love. See, there's nothing that can pull us away from God's love. It's amazing to me how God loves the people that he loves. So it would be amazing for him not to love someone like you. So God does love you. And if human beings would give God half a chance, they would understand how much God loves them and love wins. God is able right now. But here's the deal. Our talking about it and our affirming it doesn't mean we know what Paul says we ought to know. So here's the question for you. Where do you want to see God work in your life? I want to end with a story. Um, Some time ago, I was in a situation, a couple years ago, I was in a situation that involved really deep disappointment. It was kind of a rock-your-world type deal. Um, It was kind of disorienting. It involved an outcome that that desperately was not great. I lost control in some ways. So I called a dear friend up and poured my heart out to him. And of course, I was expecting him to empathize, to sympathize with me. He said, oh, Ron, I am really so sorry for you. Oh, I can't believe this is happening to you. He didn't say any of that. 
After I told him what was going on, he paused and he said this, Ron, this is going to be the test of your joyful confidence in God. What? Because, Ron, there is a God like the one that Jesus describes in your universe, in your life and in my life, where no circumstance can put him, me, or us apart. Ron, you are in God's care and in his love. This is a test of your joyful confidence in God. Where is your joyful confidence in God this morning? To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that works within us.